Welcome to Why Did Peter Sink? This is the second part of the series called About Uranus. The gospel writers somehow plumbed the depths of meeting with simple phrases and stories, such as Pontius Pilate's response to Jesus, what is truth? These words coming from a Roman governor to the arrested carpenter could not be lo more loaded with meaning. These phrases are like Easter eggs dropped into the text without any fanfare. They don't even appear suspicious on first pass. There's no exposition or discussion. In this case, it's a simple question, but it speaks volumes. The writer just moves on. It's like a James Joyce kind of move, except James Joyce did it on purpose, while the gospel writers don't seem to craft these intricate, concise jaw droppers intentionally. Those lines are just there. They are also just fishermen and common workers who are writing these gospels later in life, unlike James Joyce, who spent a lifetime reading classic literature. Yeah, these, these lines, like Pilate's, what is truth, is just there, and it seems like they're there because the writing that happened was just explaining what actually happened. As the saying goes, the truth needs no rehearsal. That's the strange thing about reading these events and teachings and parables, because the words never stop revealing further depth. You skip over lines like this, this what is truth, and come back 10 years later and see something new, something different. You read them the third or the fourth time, and your eyes pop out of your head as a new angle on a phrase appears lit up under a glow that you somehow never noticed before. So these three words from Pilate sum up the question that the entire Bible is answering because Pilate speaks to the truth, whose name is Jesus, and tells him that there is no such thing as truth. The statement reads like a confession or maybe a statement of faith as Pilate is looking at the truth and doesn't recognize it. Pilate does recognize that there is no sin or crime in Jesus, but he's not really interested in justice or mercy. He's interested in keeping the peace. He's in a the dilemma of a position of power where doing the right thing must be sacrificed for the proverbial greater good. But he is nervous and unsure. The whole situation has both Pilate and his wife rattled. They know something is different about this man, and it seems that the ones in power are slowly becoming aware that uh, the return of the king is near. The Roman foundations of life um, is for the first time ever feeling shaky to them. The false gods are being put on notice. In, his, in this position of power, Pilate stands face to face with Jesus and seems for a brief moment drawn to the truth before his worldly power yanks him back. Uh, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, had a similar interaction with Jesus where he was drawn in to the truth that Jesus was telling him, but his status in the community pulled him back in. They're both like Michael Corleone in The Godfather. They just cannot get out of it. There's, they're in this world and they, they, there's no escape. So neither Pilate nor Nicodemus can reach this escape velocity from the orbits their lives have kind of settled into. For Nicodemus, the situation is even harder because he wants to believe. You sense that in the story, but he can't let go of his pride of position and his legalist vision of God. The transactional version of God is a false god, just like Zeus is a false god. Uh, but So Pilate and Nicodemus, and Nicodemus both live under a false god. The one who seems to fully recognize Jesus as the Savior is this other guy named Caiaphas, the high priest, because he knows 
that Jesus must be killed in order to preserve his worldly power. He seems to have no question about what needs to be done. So Caiaphas tattles on himself. There's a few lines from him. It really speaks about his worldview, just like Pilate's with what is truth. And Caiaphas, when he's talking, you can very plainly see his love of power um, almost more than you can see it in Pilate. Pilate is kind of a stooge here in a way, representing the fallen world after the Tower of Babel story. He is one of these scattered kings. Uh, the word scattered is in the Tower of Babel where the, the nations are created after that. Um, Pilate is like a symbol of the nations who, who all scratch and claw for worldly power. They're all fighting amongst each other. But Caiaphas is meant to be the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem and the leader of those who are set apart for the one God. Um, as the high priest of the Jewish temple, Caiaphas has been very interestingly appointed to his position of power by Pilate's predecessor. In other words, there is a major problem here because Caiaphas, do you see the problem? Um, I know this gets weird with the old names and who is in charge of what and who or what is a like a Sadducee or a Pharisee or a Roman and all of that. But here's the diamond in the rough. Here's, the, here's what's the problem. Caiaphas is in bed with Rome. Caiaphas was appointed by a Roman to be the high priest of the temple. So that's not good. That's not a good thing if you're reading the Bible as the one true God becoming um, ascendant, back uh, taking over from this fallen world. So just like Solomon, just like Ahab, just like Lot, just like Jeroboam, so is Caiaphas. What has he done? Well, he has rejected the one true God. Uh, of course, he thinks he has not done that, but he most certainly has, since his job was given to him by the pagan rulers, the Romans. The reason Jesus flips out in the temple, if you remember the story where he flips the tables over and he chases out the moneylenders and he whips the cattle and chases them all out, um, it's because Caiaphas is a stooge of the other stooge. He... Caiaphas claims to represent God, the one God, but he's turned the temple into a, a Roman beer hall and a Texas pit barbecue restaurant and an outlet mall. In other words, he has let the culture in and by doing so rejected the one true God. His one job was to keep the culture out. He was supposed to protect that sacred space. We all know that Pilate is in bed with false gods. He's a Roman. He's a Roman, so of course he is. But Caiaphas, of all people cannot be playing around with Uranus. I'm sorry, I had to go there. I had to, it needed to be said. Caiaphas might as well put a statue of Uranus's grandchild, Zeus, right in the middle of the temple on a pedestal because that's what he's done in spirit. He has allowed the many gods to take over or to move in, making the Jews no different from the world then. The temple is no longer treated as sacred for the one God. Instead, it's a place of transactions, just like any other false slot machine god of the pagan world. Caiaphas and the high priests have corrupted the temple. Abraham's steps toward restoring faith in the one God has been steered off course. That's the problem. He's, it's being steered right into the arms of the many gods. That's, that's the main problem here. Uh, Caiaphas has led the people to stop swimming against the current, and he has turned them around to flow with the mainstream. This ruins the whole project of the chosen people because the word chosen means choosing the one true God. 
The moment they stop choosing God, there is no specialness about them. They're just like any other country or culture. They are just another tribe or nation who prop up objects as God, as gods and project their own desires onto that God. And I hope that makes sense. I mean, no one expects Pilate to worship the true God, but Caiaphas is supposed to do exactly that. So the question of what is truth, when Pilate says it, we actually see that it could have come from Caiaphas just as easily as Pontius Pilate, because Caiaphas is only after earthly power as well, and his words really tattle on him, betray him in this case. Um, both of these men are painted into corners by their lust for power and glory, and neither can get out of it. But Caiaphas recognizes the danger much earlier and takes action to protect his power. Um, essentially, then he denies the true God, and he goes all the way. He is not holding back. Once he recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, Caiaphas knows that he has to make sure that Jesus is killed. The Pharisees have a meeting with Caiaphas, who is a, Caiaphas is a Sadducee, and the Pharisees and Sadducee groups don't much care for each other at all. The fact that they meet at all speaks loudly regarding their fear of what Jesus represents. It's hard to imagine that a wandering carpenter who is healing people could generate such concern, but this is exactly what happens. So in this meeting, these holy men discuss the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That's, that's the preceding event that, or the compelling event that brings them to this meeting. Um, for us today, we don't know what to make of this idea of Jesus bringing Lazarus back to life. Uh, I think a lot of people read that and think, what a bizarre and unbelievable story. So that reaction we have today, that would have been just as unbelievable to Caiaphas or Nicodemus or Pontius Pilate or anyone else in those days. So it's not like that would, be, would have been a normal event back then and that these gullible fools in the first century were just such suckers that they just believed that happened. Um, just because they lived in that time doesn't mean they were stupid. It just means they didn't have smartphones. If, if they thought Jesus raising Lazarus was a hoax or a lie, they would not have gathered. They would not have held this meeting. If Jesus was just some nut job wandering about, they would have ignored him. Uh, this is always the best way to handle a conspiracy theorist or a crazy person. Um, you let them make their own case because discerning people will eventually see them as nut jobs and it plays out. So no intervention is required by government or religious leaders to convince people that the, your crazy uncle is crazy. Organizations and powerful people who despise one another don't convene meetings to discuss how to handle a problem unless they legitimately see a problem that will threaten their way of life. So the Pharisee and Sadducee meeting in John 11 is like the meetings of the five families in mafia movies where they gather to set aside differences in order to devise a plan to take out a common enemy that presents an existential threat to their going concerns in life. Anyone who reads or watches mafia movies, and we've all seen them, knows this is exactly what these meetings are all about. Uh, the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, um, that's a quote you'll hear. Or another famous one is, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, uh, which is a line that could almost make Nicodemus suspect in his clandestine meeting with Jesus. But that's the kind of speculation that I need to leave alone because I can invent my own conspiracy theory very easily. 
if I would go down those rabbit holes. So let's stick to the meeting in John 11, um, because I think that meeting where they get together to think, to, to sort of think through what are we going to do about Jesus is critical to understand in terms of the scope of the entire Bible, because that is the moment where the decision is made to pursue execution of Jesus. The leader of the meeting is Caiaphas, but they all clearly understand what is happening with Jesus. There's something going on, uh, something very strange. And one of the people says, one of the meeting members says, if we leave him alone, all will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our land and our nation. So there, this is one of the declarations at this meeting that they need to do something about this or it's going to be a real problem. So, but if you hear that saying, and I'll read it one more time, if we leave him alone, all will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our land and our nation. So do you see what they are trying to protect? They don't care if Jesus is actually the Messiah or the Savior. No, they are worried about our land and our nation. In other words, they want stuff. They want power. They are operating under, under the assumption that their role is not serving the one true God, but rather the land and the nation. This shows their cards. It's like they're playing uh, poker with the hand facing outward all of a sudden. They give away their motives. We can see what their, what their real motives are. Now, why would that matter? Who cares? Um, it matters because the covenant of Abraham was not only about land and nationhood. If that's all it was about, then the Bible could have been wrapped up at the end of the book of Joshua. The promised land was to be the sign of the, greatest, the greater promise. The greater promise was to bring a blessing upon all peoples of earth, all people on earth. Uh, the promise to Abraham about the land and nation has already been completed long before this meeting between Caiaphas and the Pharisees. But they are still clinging to that idea instead of the greater promise to bless all people of the planet earth. The land is the sign of the covenant, but not the main payload. It's not the payoff. It's only the toy. It's not the happy meal. If the promise was only about land and nationhood, that's already been done. The book of Joshua, Joshua even states that the sign of this covenant is complete in Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. It's, it's very clear that the sign is finished. Um, it says it right there. Um, and then the rest of the covenant is going to be fulfilled. So it's like the cheese stands alone in Joshua. The nation is there. All is well. They have the land. They have the nation. And it even says, not a single word of the blessing that the Lord had promised to the house of Israel failed. It all came true. So there you go. Not a single word of the blessing that the Lord had promised to the house of Israel failed. It all came true. So what is left? Well, if it all came true in Joshua, where they've conquered, they've taken over the land that, as described by the parameters um, in the, you know, when he, sh when he shows Abraham this land, he tells him it's going to go from here to here. These, he's got these perimeter points and they all have it. So what's left? Well, if it all came true in Joshua, what is the rest of the Bible about? What is the point? Well, Joshua is pretty early on being the what sixth book of the Bible. And so what are the rest of the books about if the land and the nation was the whole point? And to understand what the rest of the Old Testament is about, you have to read the actual terms of the Old Covenant, 
which Caiaphas, Caiaphas and the Pharisees seem to have forgotten about, despite them being so well read in, um, in these scriptures. So it's worth reading right here, right now, so that we can see there are parts to it um, in order. And there's an order to this, and the order matters. So uh, here's the first part. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your land, your relatives, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So that's part one. Abraham needs to get out of town. That's the very first thing he does. He needs to leave the pagan world of his family and become a nomad. He cannot live among the culture of his hometown where they all cheer for the, the moon god on Friday night. He must set his family apart from the culture of the world. Keep in mind, these lines directly follow the Tower of Babel story, which is the story of how the nations have been scattered and they all worship false gods. Now to worship the one God, Abraham must not mingle with cultures who worship false gods. He's leaving, he's setting, he's moving. He's like the Amish today. They don't live in our culture. He's separating himself and that's what God's telling him to do because that's the only way he can protect it. Okay, that's part one. Here's this next line of the covenant. There's only three lines, but the second one is, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So that's part two. God makes Abraham a great nation, which comes to fulfillment in Joshua in that chapter I was talking about. Also, Abraham is clearly famous because I'm sitting here thinking about him 4,000 years after he lived, making him the greatest influencer of all time. TikTok and Instagram fame is pathetic in comparison to Abraham, no matter how many followers they have, because Abraham has literally had billions of people read about him by now. The checkboxes then for part two of the covenant have been checked. This part of the covenant marks the sign that God is serious and that he will do all that he says in the third and final part of the covenant. This is how covenants seem to work, where there is a sign for us to see and know and the greater promise, a spiritual promise that transcends our puny desires and goals and our tiny little minds. Third part. This is the last line. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the families of the earth will find blessing in you. And that's part three. That's the big promise. And this promise extends way beyond land and nationhood into the spiritual realm. In fact, God implies that nationhood might not even be so important in the end because he's talking about all the families of the earth finding a common blessing through Abraham's line. Somehow, some way, there is going to be a unifying blessing through Abraham. Hmm, okay, interesting. So the blessing is what the prophets are all talking about. That's what the rest of this Bible after, uh, the rest of the Old Testament after Joshua really starts talking about um, as the people fall away and come back and there's all these stories and wars and, and kings and, and judges and everything. Um, this blessing, this mysterious blessing is what everyone is pondering from the book of Judges onward um, all the talk of the messianic figure is about this blessing. The blessing in the last part of the covenant is not about land or nationhood. This is about something spiritual and higher than all the small cookies that we want to eat here on earth. It's something beyond that. So Caiaphas may know all about these prophecies of the coming Savior, but he doesn't care. Uh, he knows his power will be lost if Jesus is allowed to live. That's his main concern. In his external life, he pretends to know and worship the one God, but he is actually in love with his power. 
He is just like Pilate and will do whatever it takes to keep that power. At the meeting, at the meeting with the Pharisees, he admits that what he is really after is that power for the nation and not the blessing for, quote, all the families of the earth from the covenant. Here's what Caiaphas says in John 11. Caiaphas said to them, You know nothing, nor do you consider that it is better for you that one man should die instead of the people so that the whole nation may not perish. So Caiaphas clearly doesn't think Jesus is crazy. I mean, that what he's saying there is that um, he knows this is a problem. This is not some lunatic on a street corner, um, you know, dressed up in silver clothes and, and acting like a statue or doing juggling tricks or something. If, if Caiaphas thought that, there would be no motive to want him dead. This is powerful testimony by Caiaphas to show how serious people were taking these miracles and signs that Jesus was performing. If Jesus was an obvious charlatan, they would have left him alone. He would have been like any street artist in Vegas who wows the tourists. The threat he presents goes way beyond someone who wows people for tips. If he was a political agitator, the words of this meeting would have been different. As it reads, there is zero concern about Jesus rallying an army or seeking glory as a political leader. There's just nothing about that. Someone in the meeting says this important line. We don't get a name with this, but it says, If we leave him alone, all will believe in him. If we leave him alone, all will believe in him. And this is a huge distinction to be aware of because this threat is not physical or political. The speaker does not say, all will take up arms, or all will fight for this man. No, the voice says, all will believe in him. Believe is the verb. Always look for the verbs, that's where the action is. What the attendees of this meeting are worried about is that Jesus is winning the hearts of people and completely changing their system of belief in the world that they live in. And what is it exactly that this shift of belief is about? It's about him. They will believe in him. That's what the person says. They will believe in him. Every word of this meeting is, is full of meaning. Uh, the people are not, that are believing in him are not converting to some new kind of political ideology or national patriotism. They are converting to believe in him, only him. So why is that a concern? Well, it's, it's a concern because Jesus is not them. He is a sole, single person that stands outside of the Roman and Jewish world. What scares them all is that the belief in him means the rejection of the existing power structure, a turning away from that which currently holds sway in the world. And that is, of course, exactly what is happening. <laughs> they are onto it because this is the whole point of the story of the Bible, which is to turn people away from the false gods and back to the one God. So they're not, these, these people are not dumb. They know what's up. Um, the attendees of this meeting truly do see what's happening. And Caiaphas does most certainly. The belief in him, him being Jesus, will turn the existing world upside down, which to them is right side up. Pilate thinks the world of many gods is the right side up. Caiaphas thinks his dabbling with Uranus is right side up. Nicodemus thinks his legalistic punch card version of God is right side up. And none of them can see that they live in the upside down world. 
they are spiritually blind like most of us today. Uh, they understand the threat because at this meeting they admit in fear that belief in him is what is going to flip the entire world around. The shocking part is that two of these groups, which would be Caiaphas with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they think they are the ones that are keeping the flame alive, that they are the watchers who are looking for the one who will bring this blessing to all the families of the world. But when that blessing shows up, they immediately want it to go away. The threat comes from what they can see happening as the converted people make no sense to them. Actually, they do make sense, but I will get to that. Uh, the people who believe in Jesus no longer live like the mainstream masses do. They have a kind of faith and hope in the person of Jesus that neither the Romans nor the Jews could ever muster by force or through incentives of any kind, no matter what bread and circuses they throw at them. They can see, the people at this meeting can see people changing completely once they believe in Jesus, once they start following him. Just think of Matthew, the tax collector, who leaves his booth just because Jesus says, follow me. It's a radical change. Um, what is the change? Well, people stop responding to fear and start living for love of Christ, of him. The greatest threat of all here is that this cannot be explained because Pilate, Caiaphas, and the Pharisees are all accustomed to living in a world that makes the sense that they are used to it making. There's there's a, there's a action-reaction kind of world. They cannot explain this, which scares them. And the reason it scares them is because they haven't actually thought about the one God in a very, very long time because no one can explain the one God. They're used to a world that has explanations that are simple, where there's power and um, there's upper and lower class, there's winners and losers. That's how you can tell. This is actually how you can tell when someone is full of hot air about knowing God today because they claim to be on his level. No one can overrule the one God. No one can fully grok the one God, to use the sci-fi word from, I think it was from Robert Heinlein. Grok means to like understand deeply. Um, we can sense his presence. We can sense God's presence through this strange mix of nearness and impossible distance, but we cannot fully know or explain it because when we contemplate his glory, it exceeds our imagination by infinity. Yet somehow he reaches us. Yes, that's the quandary. That's the mystery. When you tune in to the one God, you experience a fear and love that result in utter humility before such power. That's the, that's the key here. It's like a fear and love together um, producing this humility, which is what you want, what you, where you want to be. If you can, Anyway, what the powers of the world fear, what they fear is uncertainty. They fear the unknown. They fear the void, the chaos, the infinite. And that is also what we as individuals fear. They want control, total control. And because they see people surrendering their lives to Jesus, they see that control slipping away, that their false gods are powerless and meaningless. That's the fear. The conch shell in Lord of the Flies has the same power as Pilate, which is none. The pig head on a stick is as weak a god as whatever Caiaphas worships. That is why they know that Jesus must go. So just like Jack on the island in Lord of the Flies, this meaning is like Jack saying to Simon, I'm warning you, I'm going to get angry, do you see? You're not wanted. Do you understand? We're going to have fun on this island. Do you understand? We're going to have fun on this island. 
So Jack is just like Caiaphas, the Romans, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and every other nation and group um, because they all are thinking we're going to have fun on this island. And what they don't realize is that they are not having fun. Jack certainly isn't having any fun on the island, even though he thinks he is. Uh, they're all miserable. The Pharisees, the Romans, the Sadducees, they're all miserable. They're trapped in a world of sin and they see no escape. And of course, seeing no exit, they know they must fight. They must fight because they must save themselves. And that's the view um, that you have with the systems of mythology. Everyone's down in this pit. It's like a pit fight or you're in the octagon and whoever wins, wins. Or whoever loses, too bad. For those following the like mythology systems, the stories of the gods themselves express the reality of the world where God is an invention. They see only one choice in that definition of the world, and that's to fight or die. You band together for safety or you wander alone vulnerable. The people at this meeting are the ones who have scratched and fought their way to the top of the dunghill. They have spent a life squabbling for honor to be mildly comfortable and any threat to their position in society or the system that they sacrifice for to get that honor and status is terrifying because it exposes them. They have sacrificed so much for the promises of this world. And if they are wrong, their entire way of life is a fraud, a waste of time. Just think of someone when the stock market crashes and how they lose their mind. If you want a, a perfect example of this, um, but, Here's what they're seeing. It's terrifying to them because if they're wrong, their life is a fraud and a waste of time. If the poor and the lepers and the insane people and the criminals and the outcasts are finding joy in their poverty with no status whatsoever, having made all the wrong moves in life, and just by believing in this man named Jesus, then everything, everything that Caiaphas, Pilate, or, or Nicodemus holds sacred will be proved as powerless as the conch shell that shattered on the rocks in Lord of the Flies. To consider this possibility is too much for these people. This mirror is too difficult to peer into because the reflection will, re will betray the truth to them. And what scares them the most, more than anything else, is witnessing people change and convert to worship a man, one man, named Jesus, and seeing these people suddenly find total joy and meaning for their lives. This rocks those in power because for the first time they become aware that their foundation for life is built on sand. They have no idea how it can be possible and don't want to hear that it is possible. How could happiness possibly come without competition and victory and power and money and pleasure? They are scared because the poor rejects of society suddenly have more joy and love than they do and they believe that their choices have been right, that they have followed the rules. Seeing this, seeing this other way of life points to the truth. And what it points back to them is that their entire way of life is based on falsehoods, false gods, and identity lies. That's why it really stabs them. Now, this is as transparent today as it was then. What we sacrifice our time, money, and life for is shown in our actions, not in our words. We act out what we believe will save us. And it's not what we post online or even say out loud, it's what we do. If you doubt this is true, just look at what we sacrifice for. We must punch our own tickets with good grades and extracurricular activities 
We spend thousands on travel sports to be in select clubs. We take advanced placement classes. We get, we work to get high test scores. Uh, we perform volunteer work quotas in order to get into a good college. The greatest irony to me of all of what we do today is require volunteer hours uh, <laughs> to show our charity. Uh, we do all of these sacrifices so that we can get a good job, so that we can have a comfortable income. And in the job, we live uh, in a perpetual state of kind of this, this, this question of what have you done for me lately to please a boss or a manager? Uh, they're like little kings, these bosses and managers who scrap their way to their positions and they will protect them fiercely. To Now, what else do we want? We want to find a suitable mate that matches our desired status. We exercise and we create clever profiles in search of bedroom experiences. We desire to travel and own things that will fulfill our pursuit of the exotic and the luxurious to feel better. We do all of this so we can eventually raise a family, maybe, who must also make these same sacrifices and run the same gauntlet with the idea in mind that someday, if we're lucky, we can retire and rest. Then, then, in the end, we can tell ourselves, I did the right things, I followed the rules. It's the same problem as Pilate and Caiaphas. We must be our own savior. That's what the problem is. We must be our own savior. The ultimate shock comes when you realize that you don't have to be your own savior. The reason Jesus must be killed is that he is telling people that they no longer need to be their own savior. He is the savior. He is the one. He is the blessing promised to Abraham in the covenant. He is the one God and he is all they have ever wanted or needed and all they need to do is trust in him. So a career-oriented person often seems like a, the wise person today because of his or her car or job, and, and maybe even more so their hygiene. Uh, but they are very often the lost person. They are polished and smooth and they say the right words, but there is a gaping hole in their heart. Um, we think people are crazy who do not take the same path that we are on because it's so painful to look down and realize that we might be on the wrong path. And what we sacrifice our time to is the God of our lives. And if this seems doubtful to you, consider who you like to mock or to hate. Who is that person or group? That is the language of your own self-salvation. That is the language of the Pharisee praying, Thank God I am not like that tax collector, while the outcast tax collector prays, Lord have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the difference. Whoever you look at and say, Thank God I'm not that person, Thank God I don't do this. Um, I'm so glad I'm not like them. That's, your, that's how you're trying to save yourself. And what you should be praying is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, like the, like the bad tax collector who says the perfect prayer. Now, if you don't see this, you aren't, you're probably not looking very hard because everyone is guilty of it. I mean, there's just so many ways this manifests out. Uh, like, for example, you have... Um, Mothers who have many children are mocked by career women, and mothers with many children mock career women. This, it just plays a thousand ways. Blue collar versus white collar, black versus white, Asian versus European, rich versus poor, urban, suburban, city, country, educated, uneducated, Democrat, Republican, public school, private school, fit, fat, Christian, Muslim, believer, unbeliever, Jew, Gentile, single, married, 
You're extrovert, introvert, sales, engineering. I had to throw that last one in because sales and engineering have this great ongoing uh, different worldview. But if you look close enough, you will find the God you actually worship. The path chosen defines your salvation, your God, as you must justify all that has been sacrificed or chosen. This is the constant hunt for meaning, which morphs in desire and changes its targets, but always remains the same in its need to craft a story that explains your choices. It's not what you say or post or proclaim, it is what you do. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Everybody's heard of that. The cross around your neck can be as meaningless as the conch shell in Ralph's hands. The cross cannot be just near your heart. The cross must become your heart. It is all about surrender and you can stop trying to save yourself. That's the story and that's the message. It's not be yourself or you deserve to be happy or pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. The message is surrender to win.